Turn, if you would, to the 18th chapter of the book of Matthew. Well, we continue to do our, uh, my daughter and I, our play. There are two dogs in the play, and now both dogs have successfully peed on the carpet in the middle of the stage. <laughs> Don't put animals in plays. Last week, we started chapter 18. Chapter 18 began with a discussion of who is the greatest in the kingdom. The disciples come to Jesus, and they want to know where they are in the pecking order. And Jesus brings a child into their midst and says, See this child? Become like this child. Become humble as opposed to seeking a place of honor, and then you will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then he has a discussion about... um, not leading children astray. In fact, he goes on to say that if you are tempted to lead a child astray, take a big rock, tie it around your neck, and jump in the river. Because it would be better for you to do that than for you to lead a child astray. And we ended up with the discussion about the man who has the hundred sheep and 99 of them are safe, and he goes and looks for the one because the one is lost. And we had a discussion about the fact that we were, are, that one that Jesus went looking for. So we pick up today in verse 15. The last time I worked through the book of Matthew, and it's been many, many years, I actually did not teach this lesson. If you're not familiar, uh, our pastor, Ted, actually did his dissertation on the next passage that we're going to deal with. He wrote his dissertation, and then he wrote a book about it, so I got him to come teach the lesson. But he's preaching today. Oh, well. So you're stuck with me. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, let's just stop right there. How many of you, you know not to raise your hand, right? How many of you have ever had someone sin against you? How many of you have ever had a fellow Christian sin against you? Now, I could stand this on its head. How many of you have been the one who have sinned against someone else? At this point, I spent a lot of time this week pondering a huge digression that I'm not going to go all the way down. I'm just going to go a little bit of a way down it and then try to get back to the actual lesson itself. If you look at the book of Proverbs, you have lots of verses dealing with the idea of a rebuke. The wise man listens to a rebuke. A wise man listens when somebody says, you're going the wrong direction. You think you're going the right direction, but you're not. But in our day and age, none of us, None of us enjoy getting a rebuke. And in fact, not only do we not enjoy it, we tend to think that if it makes me feel bad, there must be something wrong with it. You are at fault because you rebuked me. And we kind of have this tacit agreement. I won't tell you about your faults if you don't tell me about my faults. And we're all good. Life is great, except for the fact we all have faults. Well, we're okay with that. That's what grace is for, right? 
we all have faults, we have grace, so we're okay. Why am I talking about this in relationship to this passage? I spent a lot of time this week thinking about the other guy. Not the guy who has been sinned against, but the guy who has done the sinning. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm going to go to him and tell him he's done me wrong. How is he going to react? I can tell you the natural answer. He's not going to react very well. It takes a certain spiritual maturity to be able to understand that a rebuke done by a godly person is a sign of love. And that's what the book of Proverbs teaches us. I sat there thinking about this this week, you know. If you're involved in some sporting activity, you have a coach. The purpose of the coach is to tell you what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong and to help you correct what you're doing wrong. That's what coaches do. You know, I attempted to play baseball when I was younger. I was actually pretty good at playing catch. My dad was a very good baseball player, very good baseball player. He played at the University of Texas. He played in the Pan American Olympics. He was very good. He and I could throw the ball, but I wasn't very good because, first off, I was actually very short until I got to high school. I just wasn't built to... But if I had a coach, if I had listened to a coach, I probably could have improved my skills. But if somebody had said, okay, Kyle, you need to do this so you'll be better, and I had looked at them and I said, who are you to tell me what to do? I wouldn't have progressed at all. And that's the way many of us are in our everyday life. Instead of allowing someone to say, you know, that little anger problem you have, it's not a little anger problem. It's a big anger problem. But we don't like that. We don't like someone telling us we're going down the wrong path. We don't like to be coached. So, with that in mind, and we'll have a little bit more discussion in a moment about that, let's look at this passage. If your brother sins against you, if I were writing this, I would have just gone out and said, when your brother sins against you, okay? We are all fallen human beings. We're going to do things wrong. When your brother, why does he say brother? Is he talking about a biological brother? Does this passage only apply to that guy sitting over there? That's my brother, by the way. Does it only apply to him? No, we're talking about the context of the church community when a fellow believer sins against you. Now, you might add at this point that it acknowledges the fact that we as believers are going to sin. And it's going to cause ramifications. When a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. What we're going to talk about is a procedure for what is known as church discipline. Churches exercise discipline when they hold their members accountable to following the Word of God. You know that Paul tells us 
that we are not to judge those outside the church. The fact that those outside the church act like pagans should not ever surprise us. It shouldn't. Why? They're pagans. And I don't use that in a totally derogatory manner. It's just an acknowledgement that they do not acknowledge Jesus as their Lord, so they live accordingly. And that should not surprise us. But when you enter the church community, when you enter the church community, you're saying, I am acknowledging Jesus as Lord of my life, and I am accepting the church's authority to exercise discipline over me when I stray from that path. Now, I know what you're thinking. How does this keep from falling into legalism? More about that in just a moment. But let's start with the easy case. My fellow Christian does something that is a sin against me. What do I do about it? Well, I'll tell you what my natural reaction is. To heck with them. Not only to heck with them, I'm going to go tell my friend next door. I'm going to go tell some other people. I'm going to go gossip about this until that guy hears about it and he's so embarrassed he just come. That's what we do, right? I want you to pray about this situation. We hide our gossip as a prayer request to other people. We do that all the time. We want to go to other people and let them know that we've been done wrong too. And by golly, we're not happy with it. What does this verse tell us to do first? Go to the individual at this point, there is no discussion about bringing other people in. We could have a long discussion about the whole concept of gossip. The scripture talks about gossip. We're not going to talk about it. Why? It's gossip. No. <laughs> when you bring someone else into the situation who is not a party to the situation and cannot help with the situation, don't do it. Right there, just don't do it. Just stop. It's not accomplishing anything. And I did include that second category of somebody that could help with the situation. If I believe that somebody did me wrong, I might talk to Teresa and go, this is what happened. Am I right? Okay, I, I'll, I'll accept that. But if I'm just telling people so that you know, so you can pray about it, then I have stepped over the line. If somebody sins against you, go to that individual. Now, what should you do before you go to that individual? You should pray about it. You might consult the scripture. You might think about what it is that you have done that caused this to occur. Do you remember that discussion in the Sermon on the Mount? Why do you worry about the two by four in your brother's eye? No. 
the splinter in your brother's eye when you have a two-by-four in your own eye. First, deal with the two-by-four in your own eye. And then you'll be in a position, you still go, but then you'll be in a position that you can help the other person with their speck. So, you examine yourself. What have I done that caused this to occur? Maybe the answer is nothing, but usually it's something. My anger caused your anger, and I'm mad at you because you are angry at me. Right? A vicious circle. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. But it was you don't know the ramifications of doing this incorrectly. And by the way, we do it incorrectly all the time. So, the individual has sinned against you. And according to this passage, they have sinned against you. They really have. So, you go to them and you say, this is what I think has happened. Can you help me understand this. You don't go to accuse them. You don't bring out your whip and show up at their door with your torch and pitchfork. I'm mixing all kinds of metaphors here. (laughs) You don't show up ready for battle. We need to discuss what is the goal of all of this. The goal of all of this is reconciliation. Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's a question. I mean, the observation is, shouldn't we forgive them before we even go to them? And that is a great lesson that we're going to get to in about 18 minutes. (laughs) Because the passage immediately after this one is Peter asking Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? But the observation, we'll jump ahead, our goal is reconciliation. Our goal is not to make them feel bad, although that may occur in the midst of guilt, etc. That is not our goal. Our goal is reconciliation. If you do not have that as your goal, don't go because it's not going to do any good. All you're doing is going with your torch and your pitchfork in order to get even with them. You've done me wrong. I'm going to zap you, and you're not going to respond well, so I'm going to go tell the church, ha! That's the attitudes that we have. Two by four in your own eye, speck in their eye. The goal is reconciliation. It's like I have said before with the idea of a rebuke, back to the book of Proverbs. If you want to rebuke somebody, don't do it. If you have joy at the thought of rebuking somebody, don't do it. If you are on your knees and prayer and agonizing over it, then your heart is probably almost ready to do it. Somebody has done you wrong. 
somebody has sinned against you and you want to reconcile the relationship. One of the difficulties that we have today is that we are a very transient society. What do I mean by that? You get mad at somebody at this church, you go to the church down the street. You get mad at one coworker and you just leave them. You get mad at one spouse and you go find another one. Wait, did I really say that? <laughs> we don't understand the importance of reconciling relationships. Yes. And you're talking about Christians to Christians. We are. Next thing. Forgive and forget. Y'all really want to get to this forgiveness part, don't you? <laughs> yes. Yes, we're going to get to the forgiveness part. But you need to be prepared to do that. This is Christian to Christian. This is Christian to Christian. Yes. Are you saying that it differs? <laughs> no, you can talk. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You shall be known by your fruits. Uh-huh. And the fruits do not show. And the person says, You know where I'm going. Yeah. There is a long other discussion that we're not going to have. <laughs> this passage, as is highlighted, is you and a fellow Christian. The word brother is used continually through this. I will contend that this process will work with unbelievers. Just don't expect them to necessarily act as a believer. If we have done wrong to an unbeliever, we need to repent and confess to them just like we would a brother or sister in Christ. But we have no expectation that it will necessarily work out the way it should with a believer. Because we do have an interesting discussion that we're going to have in a moment. Maybe I just jump to that lesson, okay? Let's just jump down to, no. (laughs) Believers, are you ready for this? You're going to hate this. You really are. As a Christian... You have to forgive someone. I've told you before, there's an excellent book. You ought to read it sometime. It's actually a very short book called The Sunflower, written by a Holocaust survivor. And he was, as a person in the concentration camp, was working at this factory, and he was called in to meet an SS officer who was dying. And the SS officer wanted this Jewish person to forgive him. And he wouldn't do it. And the very short book is all about the fact that in the Christian tradition, you have an obligation to forgive people. In the Jewish tradition, according to this Jewish individual, there is No such obligation. What is interesting about the book is that it's actually usually much larger because the story itself is short, 
But then it is followed by a number of different essays written by people about the story. People like the Dalai Lama. I mean, big, important people talking about whether or not forgiveness is a requirement, whether it's a good, etc. So it's an interesting story. Suffice it to say, you, as a believer, have to be willing to forgive. And guess what? Lots of us aren't. So I am going to the other person, the fellow believer, to tell them what they have done to me. I am going to confront them because it may not necessarily be a pleasant situation to begin with, but I'm doing it with the motivation to reconcile the relationship. I want to be right with that person. Back to the Sermon on the Mount. If you go to give a sacrifice and realize that someone has something against you, there is some conflict, leave your sacrifice, go deal with that and come back. We have a tendency just to toss the relationship and move on with life. That's why as we work through this process of church discipline, when the church gets involved with it, the reason you don't see it very often publicly is that usually if an event like this occurs, they just leave the church. Okay? They just walk out. Why wouldn't they? But let's keep going down the, the passage. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That is the best option. That is the rebuke rightly received. That is what a wise person does. You come to me and say, you know what? You did this the other day and it offended me. And I will either go, why did it offend you? Please help me understand. I'm sorry that it offended you. Will you forgive me? That is the best answer. Yes. Oh, yeah. The opposite of forgiveness would be bitterness, and bitterness is bad. Bitterness, what's the old quote? Bitterness is drinking poison, hoping your enemy dies. <laughs> it doesn't ever work. Yes? It's just something that has happened against you, mm -hmm. and you act like a forgiven God. Why go at it at all? Okay. If you've forgiven it beforehand, why even bring it up? Well, that's actually good. Okay. Back to the book of Proverbs. It's a good thing to overlook an offense. If you can. Our problem is we often can't. If it is such a thing that you go, okay, they were tired. They spoke harshly to me. I forgive them. I can maintain the relationship. Life is good. Then life is good. Go with it. But if they have spoken to you harshly and you can't let it go and it is destroying the relationship or it is at least hindering the relationship, it has to be dealt with. Okay? Otherwise, what we think we're doing when we're forgiving and forgetting is we're forgiving and we're pondering. And then when it happens again, we forgive and we ponder some more. And pretty soon, the first time a big fight comes, all this pondering 
This is what we talk about in marriage counseling, by the way. Because all we do is we pile it up. Yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll let it go. And the first time some problem occurs of a bigger nature, this whole ocean of issues just comes boiling out. Don't do that. That's why it needs to be dealt with. So you go to them with the goal of reconciliation. If they respond well, life is good. That is the right answer. But what if they don't? But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is taken directly from the Old Testament, the observation. And we actually talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we dealt with the transfiguration. And Jesus brought three witnesses, and there were three witnesses to Jesus. Okay? So the Old Testament says that if I'm bringing a charge against somebody, I need to have two or three witnesses. I can't just make something up against you. So if the person will not listen to you, you go get two or three friends. Now, let's stop right there. Who are these friends? Two guys that you just happened to meet at McDonald's and you brought them with you? Two guys that you know will take your side because they hate the other person too? He's probably done them wrong. You look for two or three spiritual individuals with whom you can discuss the situation and get a biblical response so you can pray about it and understand, yes, indeed, this is a true problem, and then you go and talk to the other person. Now, what's the goal? It's a trick question. It's the same goal that you had before. Reconciliation. The four of you, the two or three, you, the other person, sit down and say, this is how we understand the situation. I see, we see that there's a problem in this relationship that's caused by this sin. You lay out the facts, you lay out the discussion, and you allow the person to repent and say, you're right. I was not looking at this correctly. And if they do, life is good. Reconciliation has occurred. But if not, what do you do? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. The whole church body needs to be made aware of the situation. Now, in our church, this is usually the elders. In my life here at this church, on one occasion, we've actually had an all-church meeting to discuss discipline against an individual. He had left his wife for a cute young thing and wanted to remain in the church as if nothing had happened. And the church elder said no. We're not going to allow that. We're going to give him the opportunity to repent, and he didn't. So the church community is made aware of this particular situation. Now, at this point, let's think real carefully. It is not 
the job of anyone in this process to gossip, to malign someone unjustly. The purpose of this, you've heard this, right? Because I've said it five times. The purpose of it is reconciliation. If you're doing it because you enjoy it, don't do it. You bring it before the church, whether that is the elder board or in the case of a smaller church, the congregation itself, the pastoral staff, whatever that level is, you bring it before the church so the church can discuss it with the individual and say, this is what we understand is happening. And if he repents, life is good, you've restored a brother to the community. But what if he doesn't? And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, remember, in a Jewish community, everyone that is not a Jew is a Gentile. Most of us are Gentiles. Remember that the tax collectors were appointed by the Roman government, the occupying power, the tax collectors were bad guys. Now, as an aside, remember that a tax collector is writing this down. Matthew was a tax collector. So when Jesus tells them, treat this individual as a Gentile or as a tax collector, what does that mean? If I were a good Pharisee, it would be easy to answer that question. Stay away from them. Shun them. Do not let them near you because they are polluted. If you touch one of them, wash your hands very quickly so their sin does not corrupt you. If I were a good Pharisee, that would be the right answer. But we're not good Pharisees. Remember, Jesus was accused rightfully of having dinner with tax collectors and Gentiles. The nerve of him. How could he do such a thing? How could a good Jewish person associate with a Gentile and a tax collector? So if that is the case, what does this passage mean? You are to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. What you're doing is you're treating them as if they are not a part of the Christian community. What do you do with people who are not part of the Christian community? You share the gospel with them. You don't allow them into the, in our case, the voting apparatus of the church. You don't allow them to exercise positions of leadership in the church. There are consequences of that action. But you continue to share the gospel with them. Why? Because you want, how many times have I said it? Six? You want reconciliation. That's the goal of all this. There is nothing in this to drive them away because you don't like them. The goal is always reconciliation. Now, 
let me make sure we understand another thing. At no point in this process are we questioning their salvation. It doesn't say a so-called brother sins against you, who may or may not be because we don't really know. It says a brother has sinned against you. You are not removing their salvation. More on that in the next verse. All you're saying is you're not living according to the standards as we understand them as set out in the Holy Scripture. That's all you're doing. That's all you're doing. Even at this stage, even after you've told the community, even after you've begun to treat them like a tax collector and a Gentile, the goal is always the prodigal son. When, if, when they return, you kill the fatted calf and you celebrate because your son, your brother, who was lost, is now returned. At any point, at every point, the goal is reconciliation. Right? Yes? How do you deal with the verse that says, don't eat with them? I don't know. We know that Jesus ate with Gentiles and tax collectors. Okay? When it comes to those who are looking at the scripture, looking at the commitment that they've made to the Christian church, and they've walked away from it, at that point, we need to make an assessment, and this is done on a person-to-person basis at times, what does that mean? Does it mean that I have no contact with them because to do so will uh, support their position? You know, the guy is living in a relationship that he should not be living in, and by me participating in that, I am giving my stamp of approval to it. At that point, we say no. We cannot do that. In fact, Corinthians tells us that one individual, Paul says, we gave them over to Satan. We let them suffer the consequences of their action. And I would contend in the passage that you are mentioning, and by the way, we're going to do Galatians if and when we ever finish Matthew. (laughs) There may come a time when you cannot associate with them if that association is helping them continue in their sin. There may come a time when you do that. I don't know where that is, and I can't stand up here and make, I'm not going to make a universal statement the moment somebody has crossed this last line, don't have anything to do with them. Okay? There are situations where you shouldn't have anything else to do with them. I recognize that. I hope that's not the general case. It's like the passage about casting your pearls before swine. We reach a point in a relationship with me where I'm sharing the gospel with you and you're just throwing it back in my face and I have to back off and say no. Now, do we still pray for them? Yes. 
If it's a family member, do you still keep? Yeah. But it's an acknowledgement. At some point, you may have to break off fellowship with them. It may actually be the result. I wouldn't start there. That's just my, and that is my opinion, because it's a, it is a passage that says, don't even associate with them. Yet, we are told to associate with sinners. That is always the goal, right. Right. And once again, in our, trans in our transient society, the general answer is people just leave. And it's over, okay? They don't want to be part of your life anymore. That is more difficult when it's a child or a family member or something, so... Once again, I'm not going to make the strong statement, just stay away from them. But I acknowledge that they may, you may reach a point where that is the case. Okay? Go ahead. Yeah. There's always this balance in life, okay? You go to the book of Proverbs and it says if you hang around with fools, you're going to become a fool. Okay? Whereas you get to the New Testament and it says we should associate with other people to share the gospel with them. So, do I associate with people because they need the gospel or do I not associate with people because it'll corrupt me? And the answer is yes. <laughs> and there may come a time when you're associating with somebody and said, if I continue to associate with you, I'm going to either help you, I'm going to enable you down your path, or I'm going to go. I'm going to keep staying with you because I help. I'm confident that the gospel will help you. How do we make that decision? Wisely. Okay? Guess what? We're not going to make it to the forgiveness passage. Sorry. Because now we get to the hard part. Actually, that is the hard part. And to me, the hard part is we don't necessarily want to do it. But that's another story. That's apparently next week's lesson. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now that's a strange passage. Fortunately for me, we're almost out of time. No, <laughs> fortunately for me, we actually covered this passage about four or five weeks ago. Do you remember? Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Oh, you're Elijah, you're some other prophet, you're this guy, you're that guy. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, well done, Peter, good job. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. The Holy Spirit did. Upon this rock I will build my house, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And whatever you bind and whatever you loose will be bound and will be loosened. And we had a discussion about that time, about what that passage meant. If you're a good Roman Catholic, you believe that discussion was directed toward the person of Peter. Peter was given the keys of the kingdom. Peter, as the first pope, was the rock upon which the church was built. So, if the pope 
says, yep, you're in, you're in. You have been loosened. If the Pope binds you, you have been bound. We had a discussion, though, that there was really nothing there that hinted that it was Peter himself. Maybe, and quite possibly, it was the apostles in general, the teachings of the apostles. And if we look at that, it does begin to make sense. If the teaching of the apostles, if the teachings of the church are powerful, then what they acknowledge as being bound and what they acknowledge as being loosed is in fact carrying power and weight. So when I say to someone, you are not in the church right now, I'm not talking about the Pope doing excommunication. I'm talking about a body saying you are outside the bounds of this community. That statement carries power. To who? God, the Holy Spirit, working in the life of that person will use that being bound or being loosed to accomplish his goal for that person's life. It means something. You see, we oftentimes think that the church is just kind of this bowling league of a bunch of people who show up every so often and sing nice songs and read this old book. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is a powerful force against the tools of Satan. And when I, no, when the church says you are outside the context of the church, we are going to treat you as being out. It means something in spiritual terms. You are removed from the protection, the oversight of the church community. And the church is a powerful institution. And what is bound is bound, and what is loosed is loosed. Loosed? Is that a word? It is now. <laughs> we sometimes associate the church only with the local community. And the word in the scripture is used to represent the local community. But in God's eyes, the church is the community of all true believers from, I don't know, the day of Pentecost until today. And it is a powerful institution that is spreading the gospel. Don't think of it as some small thing that carries no weight. God is saying, Jesus is saying, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This passage is quoted all the time to talk about prayer, to talk about the church community, but how many of you recognized or realized that those two verses are in the context of church discipline? What does it mean 
The church is a powerful body. What does it take to be a church? Two or three gathered in his name. Whatever we ask, collectively, God will provide. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know for a fact, I know for a fact, that we as a church have prayed for things and it didn't happen. Obviously, this passage is wrong. Well, maybe not. <laughs> Shh. Jesus makes the comment in the book of John, if you ask anything in my name, I'll give it to you. Let me tell you, because we are out of time, so I'll just give you a hint. Let me tell you the one prayer that will always, always, always be answered. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. When we as a community of believers get together, when you, another and another, get together to pray about a situation, and at the end of it, we are like Jesus who says, if it's possible, I'd rather go to plan B. This crucifixion thing doesn't sound very nice. If it's possible, I don't want to do it. But, not my will, but thy will be done. When we, as a body of believers, when we, as a body of believers, tell God, thy will be done, that prayer will always be answered. And you go, does that really help? <laughs> All we're telling God to do is do what he wants to do. Yeah. What it does is shows our heart. Why is this connected to church discipline? Did I happen to mention why we were doing this? Reconciliation of the relationship. I want the brother to be reconciled. I and two or three others have talked to them. The community has talked to them. We have said, he has said no. He has turned aside. And we get together and we pray for that person. And we say, what do we say? Thy will be done. And God says, I'm going to answer that one. It may be. Unfortunately, like Corinthians tells us, he's been given over to Satan and Satan's going to bash him for a while. But that's what it takes. Do we know that? No, we don't know that at all. God knows that. What is our answer? Thy will be done. It may in fact mean that we have to shun them because we cannot be associated. But that's not what our will is. It's thy will be done. What is God willing to do to restore that relationship? Are we willing to accept that? Our lives are full of relationships that work and relationships that don't work. And it saddens us when they don't. But at the end of the day, 
We need to turn to God and say, God, I did my part. I examined my heart. I examined my eyes to make sure there wasn't a two by four in my eye. I did what I needed to do. I got some help. I talked to people who were godly people, not just some random people I met at McDonald's. I talked to them. I have done what I can do. God, thy will be done. And that's all we can do at that point. And it's not a surrender. It's more of a surrender to the will of God. It's not giving up. It is surrendering, acknowledging that God is in control. It's giving in. Huh. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that we would work at maintaining the relationships that you have given us. I pray, Lord, that we would examine our hearts, examine our two-by-fours, that we would deal with with our sins so that we could help those around us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.